What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me no more. talking about the topic of love. What is love? And in Western culture, when someone says love, we tend to immediately think of an erotic or a romantic type of love. Uh, that's what we've been conditioned to do as our society uh, with our media and the way things are presented to us. Uh, we immediately think of a man and a woman coming together and, and pairing off as a couple and with that comes expectations that are based of what we've seen in movies and television shows and, and read in books and, and various forms of media. Television and movies depict love as something that is deep, that is profound, that is mysterious, and that no human could ever fully grasp what love is. Um, most of the time, love is described as some sort of intense emotion, uh, feelings of affection towards someone. Uh, Psychology Today published an article that called love a force that you could not control, and, and so you, uh, love is something that you're not able to control, but rather you fall into it and you fall out of it. Uh, it comes and it goes as it pleases. It's, it's mysterious and it's a force. But this is not the biblical concept of love. The Bible tells us that love is an action. Love is an action. It is an action that we can control. And, and it goes far beyond just feelings of romance or feelings of eroticism. In our passage of study tonight, John hones in to focus on this idea of love. Now, early on, John, the, the, the apostle, the, the disciple, he was not exactly the poster child to be talking about love. Uh, it is clear from the gospel accounts that early in his life, he was capable of behaving in the most narrow-minded, unbending, reckless, and impetuous fashion. He was volatile. He was brash. In fact, uh, when we look at Luke chapter 9, the, they came in to Samaria, and the Samaritans did not welcome Jesus. John and his brother James, they wanted to call down fire from heaven to destroy the Samaritans. Now, that doesn't sound like the guy who would write about love, now does it? But thankfully... John matured in his faith, and he matured in love, and under the control of the Holy Spirit, his liabilities were changed into assets. So as you compare the, old, or the young disciple with the old patriarch, and you see how much he's matured, and his areas of greatest weakness developed into his greatest strengths. He is an amazing example of what should happen to us as we grow in Christ, allowing his strength, the Lord's strength, to make us perfect in our weakness. So when we think of John today, we usually think of a tender-hearted elderly apostle. Uh, he was the elder statesman of the church near the end of the first century. He was universally loved and respected for his devotion to Christ and his great love for the saints worldwide. And that's precisely why he earned the title Apostle of Love. John states here that an authentic Christian will love in radical ways. So this is one long section, uh, one long unit describing what perfect love is and saying that it's available to all. 
And John lists five reasons that true Christians will live by love. Christians love because God is the essence of love. In order to follow the extreme example of God's sacrificial love, the supreme example of His sacrificial love in sending His Son, Jesus, for us. We love because love is the heart of the Christian witness. We love because love is the Christian's assurance, and we love because love is the Christian's confidence in time of judgment. See, love originated in the Father. It was manifest toward us in His Son, and it is now demonstrated by His people through the power of His Spirit. One cannot love God, one cannot claim to love God without loving their fellow believer. John reminds us that a claim to love God is a delusion if it is not accompanied by an unselfish love for other Christians, for our brothers and sisters in the faith. So let's jump in and take a look at what John actually has said here. 1 John chapter 4, let's read starting in verse 7 and read through verse 10 for now. Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. God's love was revealed to us. <clears throat> Sorry, I lost my spot. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent His one and only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the atoning sacrifice, or your version may say propitiation, for us, for our sins. And so the first thing I want us to see tonight is that God defines love. God defines love. John begins by stating that we must love one another. This is the, the main point, the key passage, the key phrase of our passage that we're studying tonight is that love should define the people who have been redeemed by God. And this love is different from what the world thinks of love. The Greek word for love that, that John is using in the Greek word, in the Greek language, is uh, agamen, agagamen, from agapeo, which is... Um, in, in ancient Greek literature, is actually one of the rarest words that you can find. But when we look in the New Testament, it's actually one of the most common words we find. In English, we have just one word for love. We can say, I love my children, and that means one thing. You can say, I, I love my wife, and that means something that's a little bit different. I can say, I love pizza. That means something completely different. I love my dog something different. In Greek, you have eros, which refers to romantic love. That word does not appear in the New Testament. Nor does the word storge, which is the Greek idea of a familial type of love. The New Testament does use the word philia, which we translate as love, but refers to a rather a friendship, or, or you may have heard of Philadelphia, the, the city of brotherly love. But here, John doesn't use any of those words for love. He uses the word derived from agape. The supreme measure and example of agape is God's love. This is the word that 
that John actually had used before in his gospel. John 3.16, perhaps the most common passage known uh, to all Western uh, society is, for God loved the world, He agape the world in this way, that He gave His one and only Son, or His only begotten Son, so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. Love like this, above all, is a sacrificial love. It is a sacrifice of the self for the sake of others, even for others who may care nothing at all for us, and even for those who may hate us. It is not a feeling, but it is a determined act of will that results in a giving of the self, a self-sacrifice. This term that's used here in the Greek, it's a present active subjunctive uh, use of the word. In other words, it's, it's used there as an exhortative. It is John encouraging his readers to practice sacrificial love. It should be a habitual practice for those who follow Jesus to sacrifice and to love others in a sacrificial way. Those who follow Christ, they've been born again, Jesus says, that you must be born again. And and in doing so, we receive the very nature of God since God's nature exhibits sacrificial love as one of its chief characteristics. God's children should also reflect that love. Someone may profess to be a Christian, but only those who display love like the Heavenly Father actually possess His divine nature and are truly born again. So John points out that the love of God is demonstrated to us and it's magnified for us in one great act, and that is the sacrifice of His only begotten Son. The judgment of sin on the cross was the supreme example of the love of God. For it was there where he poured out his wrath, not on us, the sinners that that had earned it, but on his perfect son. Now, if you're my friend on Facebook, you may have seen the article I recently posted from AFA, the American Family Association, about uh, some words that were said on on CNN about, um, about Christ. The perfect nature of Jesus Christ is under attack by those who are unfamiliar with the Scriptures. They're claiming that Jesus was not perfect. The world does not understand even one of the basic principles of the Christian faith, that Jesus was and is the perfect man. Yes, He was 100% man, but He is the epitome of what mankind should be. He's mankind without the effects of sin. He was 100% man, but in perfected form. And yet he is also 100% deity because he's the only begotten son of God. John uses this term we translate as begotten, or in my version it says his one and only son. In the Greek, it's uh, monogenes. And John uses it to describe the unique relationship that Christ has to God the Father. Christ's preexistence and his distinction from creation. The term emphasizes that Jesus is unique. Jesus is different from us. Jesus is different from the Father. He is one of a kind, fully God, fully man, without sin. John says, 
the Father sent this only begotten Son to be the propitiation for our sins, or, or my version said atoning sacrifice for our sins. This, this term propitiation refers to a means of appeasement or satisfaction. You know, Hamilton, uh, Hamilton, Hamilton is big right now since it was recently released on Disney+, Plus, and, and so uh, we were able to watch that. Uh, and, and in the story of Hamilton, there are three major duels uh, that take place because someone was slighted, and there's a need for an appeasement. And in fact, one of my favorite songs from the musical is the Ten Duel Commandments that sets up, for those of us not familiar with the rules of the duels, uh, what to expect to take place. Spoiler alert, Hamilton is shot in his duel with Aaron Burr, and he dies the next day. Uh, that's historically accurate. Uh, but during the scene of the duel that took place between John Lawrence and Charles Lee, Lawrence shoots Lee in the side, and, and Lawrence is for, or Lee is forced to yield, and Lawrence yells out, I'm satisfied. You know, the same is true for us. We are the ones who have caused offense. We've caused offense against God because we sinned against Him. We went against His word. We went against His law. We went against His will. And it demands payment. It demands an appeasement. It demands satisfaction. And the only thing that can satisfy is death. We are sentenced by God to endure not only His death, but His wrath. For all of eternity. Paul wrote in the book of Romans, chapter 1 For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. But then the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross takes place and satisfies the demands of God's holiness for the punishment of sin. Paul also wrote this, He made the one who did not know sin, that is Jesus, sinless, to be sin, not to become a sinner, but to be sin itself for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus propitiated, or He satisfied God's requirements. Hebrews 9 translates the form that we, of the same word uh, for propitiation as the mercy seat. Jesus became our mercy seat, like the one that's found in the temple's holy of holies, where the high priest would go in and would splatter the blood of the sacrifice on the day of atonement in Leviticus 16. And in the spilling of his blood, Jesus was the sacrificial lamb that took away the sin of the world. Yes, Jesus was in fact perfect when he was here on earth. He's still perfect as he's ascended at the right hand of the Father. And that is the only reason why his death and resurrection matters to us. If he was a sinner like the rest of us, we would still be up a creek. We would still be lost in our sin. But Jesus lived a holy and perfect life. He was without sin, and he willingly died on the cross. If he were as imperfect as we are, he would have earned his own death. But instead, because he was perfect, he, he didn't earn his death like we did but died a substitutionary death. That was not for his sin, but for ours and for all mankind's. 
So to claim that Jesus was not perfect is to claim blasphemy against what the Scriptures teach us. John says this is how God demonstrated to us what love looks like. He sent His only begotten Son, perfect in glory, to take on flesh like us, to live among us, to be like us in every way except without sin, to die for us, not just any death, but the cruel death of the cross. That is how God defines love. So, then we've got a challenge here. John says, Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we must also love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us and His love in us, or His love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we remain in Him and He in us. He has given us His Spirit. And we have seen and we testified that the Father has sent His Son as the world's Savior. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God remains in Him and He in God. And we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and the one who remains in love remains in God, and God remains in Him. In this love, and this love is made complete with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as He is, so are we in this world. So John challenged us, we ought to love like God loves. We need to love like God loves. John contends that the Father sending His Son in such a way obligates those who of us who call ourselves Christians, those of us who have decided to follow after Jesus, we have been obligated to follow this pattern of sacrificial love. Further, this is the way that God is best seen in the world today. Nobody can see the Father because He is invisible. The only accurate physical aspect of God that has ever existed was when Jesus Christ was present in the flesh, but He is no longer physically in this world to manifest God's love toward us. The church is the only remaining demonstration of God's love in our time, and it is through us by the power of His Spirit that the Father and the Son work in our world today. If we live in love and by the Spirit that He has given us, if we abide in Him and testify to Christ, then we become the manifestation of the love of God to the world. No one can truly love without the Spirit of God working in their lives. And the way we have the Son is, or the, have the Spirit is to confess the Son who is sent from the Father as the Savior of the world. Then the Holy Spirit lives within us and, and leads us and guides us in the love of God. We find security, we find rest in the love of God. Notice that John says in verse 17 that the love of God is made complete or has been perfected in us. It is not something that we do, but it is an act of God. And the more we learn to abide in Him, the more He works His acts of love through us. John is not suggesting that we're reaching sinless perfection here. But that love matures in us by the power of God. That love is marked by the confidence that we have in the face of judgment. We have seen ourselves become more loving of the people who don't like us. For those who don't care about us or for even those who hate us, we can rejoice 
that we've become more like Christ by the power of the Spirit if we love them. For as He is, so are we. Jesus was God's Son, in whom He was well pleased. We are God's children, co-heirs with Christ, and the objects of His gracious goodness. If Jesus called God Father, so also may we, since we have been accepted by His beloved Son. So we ought to love like God. That is our challenge. John goes on to say, There is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear, because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears is not complete in love. We love because He first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And we have this command from him. The one who loves God must also love his brother and sister. And so we see that love drives out fear and hate. Love drives out fear and hate. John distances love from fear. Fear is dread. Fear is terror. It is the opposite of the boldness that marks ones that are mature in godly love. Love and fear are mutually exclusive. They cannot be together. Fear prevents you from loving and living boldly because there is a fear of punishment. How many Christians fear sharing the gospel because they are concerned that either the person that they're talking to is going to reject them and they're going to receive a social punishment because of their standing for Christ? Or maybe you're like, that's not my problem. My problem is I'm afraid that I'm going to say something wrong and the person's going to going to be driven further away from God and then God's going to be mad at me and he's going to punish me for it. But when you allow love to govern your life, it frees you to share the gospel without fear because love drives out fear. And we can live in boldness because we already know that God loves us. Look at what John says in verse 19. We love because He first loved us. We love because He first loved us. We already know that God loves us. He doesn't want to punish us. In fact, if he hadn't made it clear enough already, he sent his son to take the punishment that was due to us. But rather, we can have love because he first loved us and demonstrated that love to us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly, us. We don't have to fear losing God's love because we didn't earn God's love. There's nothing we could do to earn God's love, and there's nothing we can do to lose His love. And then in verse 20, he directly, John directly refutes what the Gnostic teachers have been teaching. These who claim to love God, but demonstrate a contempt for the people of God. There's a genuine love for God that results in a love for those whom God loves. The Father loves His children. God produces love in the hearts of His people. And the ones who claim to love God but are living, practicing hate are not of God. They are false teachers. They are false prophets. They are not authentic Christians. If a believer cannot 
love his Christian brother or sister whom they can see in the flesh, how could they possibly love a being that they cannot see with their physical eyes? In order to love God, you must first learn to love your fellow believers. Love for God and love for His people is bound so tightly together that it is indistinguishable. So we are called to love. So let me give you five keys to loving. Love is an absolute of the Christian life. Jesus told His disciples in John 13, 34, and 35, I I give you a new command, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus left no doubt that agape love, this self-sacrificial love, is the supreme mark of discipleship to him. He taught it. He demonstrated it. And Jesus teaching can be summarized like this. Number one, love is a command. Love is a command. Jesus clearly says, I give you a new command. Love one another. Love is commanded. Second, love is already possessed by Christians. It's something that God works in our lives to produce. If you have no love in your heart, maybe you need to consider Do I have a relationship with the one who gives love? The one who is love? Love is already possessed by those who are Christians. Love is the norm of Christian living. It should be what marks our lives. It should be the normal thing. If you see a Christian who is living in hate, that should be a red flag. That person has something weird going on in their lives. Either what they're saying and and doing don't line up. So either they're not a Christian or they're not acting like one. But love should be the norm of Christian living. Number four, love is the work of the Spirit. It's not something that we can produce ourselves. We're not capable of doing this. Human beings have the capacity for love only in the power of the Spirit, only when God works. Otherwise, our acts of love really aren't. They may appear to be, but usually what that is is we're getting something out of it. Number five, love must be practiced to be genuine. Love must be practiced to be genuine. You can't say that you love someone and not do it in practice. Jesus said you, you can't say go and be well, peace upon you, and love. You have to meet those physical needs. You have to work and do deeds of love from a heart of love. When we stray from the source of love, it's impossible for us to be loving. Self-giving love, love that demands something of us, love that is more concerned with giving than in receiving, is as rare today in in many of our churches as it was in the ancient church. But John challenges them and he challenges us. We have the Spirit working within us. Allow the Spirit to move 
to work acts of love. Love is an action, not a feeling, not a force, but a determined choice to act in a certain way, a self-sacrificial way, just as God did for us. The Father sent His own Son to die on the cross. If we practice that kind of love in our world today, the world will be turned upside down. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we close. Lord God, it's a great challenge for us to rely upon your Spirit, to rely upon you. Father, we always try to go our own way and do our own thing. Even when we claim to be followers of you, we still are racked by the choices of sin to turn away from you and to do our own thing, our own selfish thing instead of the selfless thing. God, help us to have a lifestyle that is marked by sacrificial acts of love done in your name, not for our glory, but for the glory of the Son, whom you sent to die on the cross as the ultimate form of your love. God, we thank you for your mercy and your grace that you showered upon us in his sacrifice. God, I pray that we would live this out this week, that we would love just as you have loved. God, we pray this in the holy and precious name of the Son, Jesus Christ, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Mm-hmm.